Welcome to another edition of Truth and Rhythm, brought to you by FunkinStuff.net. This is the interview show that gets deep in the pocket with contemporary music's foremost masters of the groove. I am your host, Scott Dr. G.X. Goldfine, musicologist, creative arts journalist, and multimedia pro. Whether you're watching the video version of this show or the audio-only podcast version, I thank you so much for your continued interest and support in the show. If you enjoy this programming, there are several ways to help support Truth and Rhythm, as well as contribute to further enhancements and expansion, plus get some sweet perks and rewards in the process. First, subscribe to the Funkin' Stuff channel on YouTube, which is where Truth and Rhythm lives, and be an advocate by spreading the word among fellow funk, jazz, and R&B music lovers. Second, join Truth and Rhythm's new membership program through Patreon, which features three tiers for truth believers, truth seekers, and truth crusaders. You can also submit a direct donation to the cause anytime at funkinstuff.net. At that site, which is loaded with awesome content, you can also purchase the book, Everything's on the One, The First Guide of Funk. Shop for official Truth and Rhythm and Funk and Stuff merchandise, and use the Amazon links for all of your online purchases, which allocates a percentage to this show. Sponsorship opportunities are available as well. Contact me directly at scottg at funkinstuff.net. For those of you who go the extra step in supporting the show, you have my heartfelt gratitude for allowing us to continue to shine the light on those special artists whose quest is to find truth in rhythm. I am pleased to welcome to the Truth and Rhythm Mothership bassist, composer, and producer Cornelius Corny Mims a founding member of 1980s funk band Tees, and an in-demand sessions player. He's worked with dozens of top music stars, including Vanessa Williams, Johnny Gill, Howard Hewitt, Grover Washington Jr., Snoop Dogg, LL Cool J, DJ Quick, Phil Collins, Brian McKnight, Boys to Men, Lionel Richie, Mary J. Blige, Smokey Robinson, Rashawn Patterson, George Howard, The Winans, and Patty Austin. Whoo, that's some list. Yeah. How are you, man? And I am well, Scott. I'm well, you know, trying to keep it all going, man. Trying to stay relevant. Yeah, well, I think you're doing more than that. So welcome to the show. So glad you can make it. Thanks for having me, brother. Now, where are you coming to us from today, Corny? Man, I am coming to you today from sunny, and believe it or not, it's sunny. Providence, Rhode Island is where I am right now. Um, you know, I'm L.A., born and raised. I'm a L.A. native, and, um, you know... I actually technically still live there, but man, I've had uh, like a, a, a circumstance, a very, very untimely death in my family a couple of months ago. Oh. Um, and it was my daughter, you know, who lived here in Providence. And I have a 16-year-old granddaughter that I now have to raise. So I'm here in Providence, you know, just kind of getting her through 
the last bit of her school year. And then I'm going to bring her to California and to live with me in LA. Wow. That's heavy, Courtney. I'm sorry to hear that. Sympathies. Oh, Thank you so much, man. Thank you so much. Yeah. Inter- you know, it's, it's pretty, pretty, pretty amazing, man, but I'm doing okay. Doing okay. Wow. Well, just prayers and best wishes to you and your family at this time. I appreciate it, man. So, yeah. Mm-hmm. So, you know, uh, thankfully music is, uh, one of the best healing things there is. So Whew. thank God for it. Yeah, I, absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. It, it, it'll get you through. And, and you know what, um, specifically, I would say the funk will get you through it all. You know? Absolutely. That's, that's my, that's my religion right there. Now you're talking. Funny thing when it comes to the funk, man, it has a way of getting you through the tough time. Definitely. Yep. Um, when I first, uh, went to, uh, you know, a P-Funk show in the seventies and that, uh, mothership and all that, I mean, man. if that wasn't a close to God experience, I don't know what is. I saw that. I saw it. Um, yeah, I think I saw the in, in 76 and in, in, at the Coliseum. I did see Parliament Funkadelic at the, at, the, at the cool, I think it was the cool jazz festival or the, the funk festival, you know, at, at, at the Coliseum. And I remember yeah. in the yeah. 10th, so 76. Yeah. Wow. Um, yeah. Yep. Uh, anyways, <laughs> good reminiscing. So uh, as you said, from Los Angeles, like me, um, and uh, I guess we were talking before we went on air. We actually got out of high school the same year, so we're right in there. Yeah. Um, yeah. How how would you say uh, to the viewers that you know, growing up in that environment uh, kind of shaped you in general and also musically? You know what? It was a it's a combination of the environment that I grew up in and the time, the era you know, what was going on musically and for a young musician in the 70s. You know, if you are a youngster and you aspire to play a musical instrument and um, you, we had such great um, templates to gravitate towards at that, in that era. I'm talking about in the, in the early, the mid 70s, even coming out of the 60s, you know, and then music was so important and such a major part of, you know, school and my neighborhood. And um, oh, there were kids aspired to play. And it was encouraged and it was supported, you know, at that time, you know, really, really supported. So for me, it was a co- the combination of, you know, the environment. You know, I grew up in the Gardena South Bay area of L.A. And um, it was just a rich, rich musical culture, you know, um, for youngsters during the, the, the 70s. And um, a lot of super talents, a lot of talent. So it was a positive, um, it was a positive, uh, what would you call it? A, environment? A, a environment, but I mean, a, a competition. Oh. You know, it was competitive, you know, but it, it, it pushed me. Because I know I knew I was good, but there, there were so many other good kids. So in order to really excel, you really had to, you know, put the work in. Yeah, so that, that's you, what can, you, you, you can you can only fake it so far. Man, you could fake it, and if you had it, you you know. But even with it, you had to push. You know, I mean, if you had it naturally, you know, the gift. You know, so, and, and there were kids that had it. And it came like, for me, it came so easy. Whatever instrument I attempted to play as a kid, 
you know, I pretty much learned it and could really, really maneuver. But even with that, you know, you had, uh, you weren't the only one back in the 70s. There were other kids. And, you know, so it just really kind of made you work hard, you know, to, to really excel at your instrument, you know, because it was, it was important to be dope. Were you uh, completely self-taught or did you have some lessons? Did you have a mentor? You know what? Um, as a, as, you know, I, I was, um, I took piano lessons. I, that, that was the formal training, formal, you know, lessons, private lessons that I took was um, piano. I think I started around age nine. I, I took piano lessons till age 13. But um, I picked up the bass actually in, during the, during that period of time too. Um, that was probably I think I was about um, twelve. You know, around seventh grade, I really took a, an interest, and it was accidental in the bass guitar because I didn't quite even understand what it was when I really took the interest. You know, I had to kind of do some investigation to find out what that instrument actually was. But um, and then I and, and once I started to play bass, I think my dad bought me my first bass at age 13, eighth grade. And um, it was just a natural fit. And I taught myself, you know, for the for the most part in the beginning. And then, you know, like we like many kids did, you know, once you kind of start listening to records and dissecting records and dissecting bass lines and, you know, kind of dissecting them and putting them back together. You know, I would say I was kind of taught by that a lot, uh, you know, a lot in my earlier days. And then I started hooking up with other guys and, you know, you know, we started shedding and learning from each other, you know, each one teach one, you know. And as you were saying, Courtney, I mean, you came up in that golden era, I mean, of the bands and especially yeah. the funk bands and, and yeah. the bass players. I mean, you're talking about, you know, your Lewis Johnsons and Larry Grahams and Mark yeah. Adams and. And and so many Bootsy, uh, like I'm oh, yeah. representing. So, uh, who who yeah. are some of your your very favorites and biggest influences? Man, I am telling you, of course, Larry Graham. Larry Graham. Um, I was totally inundated with Graham Central, by Graham Central Station and Larry Graham. You know, um, in the very early days, um, I would have to also say. And I got to tell you this, man, I saw this album cover. I had never heard one song by these guys. I just saw the album cover. And I was so impressed just by the way the two guys, the two brothers on the cover looked. And it was George and Lewis Johnson. And it was the very first Brothers Johnson album called Look Out for Number One. And of course, I bought that album, dived in, man, and Lewis Johnson immediately, you know, became my guy. My guy. Um, of course, Mark from Slade, uh, you know, a huge influence, you know, was uh, Mark Adams. Um, there's another brother out of Atlanta named Ray Ransom. Are you familiar with Ray Ransom? Rick. Oh, yeah. Rick, come on now. <laughs> Woo! Ray Ransom, baby. You know, huge. You want to sit down where you want to get down. Uh, Love that. Oh, what you know about that, man. That. I'm talking about that. You know, it was those type, those type of um, bass players and those. You know, and, and there was a, a lot more. I know I'm not covering them all. And then, but no, on a whole different side, on the bass player influence was Jaco Pastorius and Weather Report, you know, because, of course, not only were we in the 70s really groomed on the funk, 
we were also going to jazz and jazz fusion and you know and even rock and you know it was such a like especially in the area that i grew up in in the south bay gardena such a melting pot of ethnicity until i was influenced by all all types you know so jaco pastorius on a whole different um um direction was a incredible and still to this day and all those dudes even to this day they, they still play a very integral part into you know as to my my bass and my funk approach you know i haven't really variated much from what i came up on i'm still that guy you know yeah well thank goodness guy. man keeping it alive you know i mean that's at 60 years old i'm still giving it to them yeah do your hands get uh, uh, more sore these days, or are you pretty good? Man, you know, a little, and sometimes, but man, I just dig through it, man. You just dig through, and, you know, it, and, and I'm really grateful to say it's a minimal, if, if at all, even at this, you know, with, with this many years in, you know, I still pick that bass up, get up on stage, and do what I've been doing. You know, what would you say are, are a couple of elements of your signature style and how you approach your playing? Man, I tell you, um, I, 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 I refer to it as, you know, th there's a thing that some bass players do. Firstly, it's the, the role and the position of the bass in the ensemble. It's a foundation. It's a foundation, man, and that's all it ever should be is a foundation it's it's the glue you know to the ensemble it's the thing that makes your booty move and and, and it's subliminal you don't even understand why your ass is moving you don't even know and, and but it's the base so you know i mean coming up like during that era of time where you got iconic bass lines and those bass lines were very linear right they weren't all over the place and they weren't jumping all over and, and you know, it wasn't a whole bunch of notes played. It's just conviction. You know, it was the it was the, the the conviction in which those lines were were hit, you know, and it just made them it was the, the magic in, in the foundation and in the funk. So I mean, I really grabbed a hold of that. So, you know, I've never even been a bass player that I don't like taking bass solos. I don't even like taking bass solos. I think I think bass solos are whack. I don't like them. For me, I like to solo by way of my groove. Like I like my foundation and the fact that I'm keeping that thing so locked down and so heavy and so rooted. I, that's where I choose to shine. You know, so I think that has been the thing that has really kept me relevant and kept me working through all these years. Because the one thing about Corny Mendes, that dude, man, he, he, he just refuses. He refuses to, 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 um, to sacrifice the groove for the sake of... Um, and then there's a discipline. There's such a discipline to locking that funk in, man, and sitting on it and not moving. I mean, I'm talking about for 96 bars straight, you just sitting on a groove, man. You ain't make, you ain't making no extras. It's just the funk and the groove. And then what I love about it is, say you've been sitting on it for ninety six bars straight, right? You've been hammering, and then you make just one slight little nuance move at ninety six, crossing over the bars ninety seven. It's like, wow! Did you hear that? 
but he gets right back at 97, and then he gives you another 96 bars, straight funk. You know what I'm saying? So it's that foundational mindset, you know, that I know, you know, was instilled early for me. And I just, it's, it's dope to me. It's dope. And I like it not only from the bass, bass player's vantage point. I like drummers that sit down on it, man, and will just keep that thing, man, when I'm, especially when I'm playing with them. I like, man, and all of a sudden, you know, it's just being the drummer as far as I'm concerned. You know, and we just sitting on that thing, man. So dope, so funny, so funky, and so consistent, man. And then I look in the audience and I see people, and they're like, they're their asses are moving and they're grooving, and man, you know. And I and I totally know why. I totally get it. I sit up there and watch the re the, the response as I'm watching, watching, you know, as I'm playing, especially when I got the right drummer, the drum bass combo. And it's magic, you know, magic. So that's kind of been my whole mindset through my um through my career is man that foundation phone. You know? Well, yeah, you know, we talked about some of the more a little more flashier bass players from the era, but still just you know, there's a reason why groups like you know, Earth Wind and Fire and Ohio players yeah. and so many of them, you know, the bases weren't always that flashy, but they had the best grooves of the era. And skin, I had man, skin tight. Oh that, man, that baseline. Yeah. It's just a two-bar loop, a two-bar loop, and that's it. Jones didn't. He wasn't all over the place. He wasn't, you know, doing a bunch of acrobatics. It was a do 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 and that's it yeah hey but you know what no minutes that was the first album i ever bought so that tells you my history Absolutely, baby. yeah so we uh, had to i think we, you and i were in the eighth grade yeah, yeah. <laughs> that was probably the first baseline I, I learned how to play with skin time i just i just uh, had uh ronald lapred uh lapred on the show from that's commodores true. yeah that's and my he boy. actually yeah, he told me that um, Brickhouse was inspired by Skin Tight. Oh yeah, 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 absolutely. Yep, um, I I can totally hear the the relationship. Um, Brickhouse to Skin Tight, same key, both of them in, in A minor, you know, and um, I totally get that. And I also I had on James Alexander recently, and he was talking about you know how the secret also to those Barquets jams was yeah. just being in the pocket and not being. Yeah so flashy but holding it down like nobody else you know james alexander that's another one man you know he did a they did a uh a song this is one of my real anthems my personal anthems is a barcade tune called holy ghost and i mean james alexander is it's just a one bar loop and he never leaves it and it's magic you know it's those simple, iconic lines for me, man. You know, and, you know, James Alexander is responsible for quite a few of them. Yeah. Um, and he, he didn't even know how to play when he joined that group. So that was. Wow. Wow. <laughs> wow. Um, yeah. Um, so what were your, uh, you know, early experiences uh, that sort of led you to tease? Oh, man, you know, 
it was formulating and brewing for a few years, even before it actually became teas, or, you know, what would ultimately become teas, just through school, man, you know. Um, by middle, junior high school, we called it junior high school, we didn't call it middle school, remember? <laughs> but by junior high school, man, I was, um, I would say eighth grade, I pretty much knew that I, you know, music was something that I, I, I really loved and, you know, ex could excel at and I wanted to excel at, you know? So as I began to meet other kids, you know, in my neighborhood and at my school, and we started putting bands together and, you know, going through different, you know, configurations of bands and, you know, and in school, we also had, you know, in the, in the school programs, you know, um, I started to hook up with different guys, you know, and some of the guys, you know, we became, and, and uh, what's beautiful in, in my case, some of those very guys from junior high school and high school are my boys today. I mean, we still play together. We still you know, I'm getting ready to do a gig at the end of this month, and two of the guys rolling with me, uh, we're going to the Dominican Republic, and two of the guys are my are guys that I went to guard, I went to middle school with. We've been literally playing together for over 50 years now, you know, and we're still doing it. But that's what it was, you know. So it was just kind of like you know, getting and connecting up with some some of those dudes, the Kipper Joneses, the Paul Jackson Juniors, you know, the Kevin O'Neills. Um, you know, and there's other guys, other guys in that whole conglomerate of, of, of young kids that um, I began to really forge relationships musically and personal. You know, they're like, you know, we brotherhoods. And um, we, and, and, and one in particular was Kipper Jones. That was a super important, you know, which happened in 1976 when I came to Gardena High School in the 10th grade or summer prior to um, um, 10th grade. And although we did not live in the same neighborhoods and he was bust in, when he got to Gardena and I got to Gardena, he and I connected and it has been a, a, a relationship that, you know, carries on to this very minute. You know, me and Kevra have never really separated from the summer of 1976 to right now. You know, I mean, the dude was super talented. You know, he had a lot of girls after him and I admired that about him. He was a, just a real super entertainer and a musician and he was 15 and I was 15. So it got to a point where Kipper and I, you know, through high school, it was like every band that I was in or that I had anything to do with, if he wasn't already a member, we have to figure out how we, he, he could be a member if you want to move him. <laughs> you know, it's like, okay, so what's Kipper going to do? You know, it's just like an automatic thing, you know, it's just implied. Kipper's going to be in this band if you didn't if you didn't know. And same thing with me, with him, you know, if he was asked or was a part of something, you know, he'd just go to the, to the powers of be, okay, I got this guy, Corny Mims. We're going to have to figure out a, a way to get him in here, you know, if you want me to be in so, Kipper and I kind of um, maneuvered through life and through music, you know, got through high school, graduated high school, tried our hand in college, and then the professional um, industry bug started calling us, you know, right, you know, by 1980. By 1980, we started getting some real, real 
the professional cause. So it was like, hey, man, to hell with college. So, so, so um, and, you know, we had formed a band that would ultimately become teams by that time, too. Yeah, I, I know that um, the group uh, won a talent show, and um, and I think I is it is it true that the name of the band kind of uh, came like from somebody backstage making the suggestion or? No, not really. That's not really how Keys came about. Um, okay, firstly, the band had totally disbanded. We had broke up, and before Keys, we were called Seventh Heaven. Is who we were in seventh heaven at this band. And somehow it was very, you know, just out of nowhere. The, the, the KH concerts in the park came up in 1981 and somebody got wind of it. I think it was one of our guitars. And he said, hey, this contest is coming up. Let's put something together. Let's put something, you know. We don't know what we're going to call it, but we're not going to call it. We don't even know what what it is. But we're gonna I'm gonna enter us into this contest. And so to my recollection, I believe this was Joe Parson, who was like the who just I mean just pulled a name out of the air. Last minute And you know, that's what he entered us into the contest as, and that's who we were. And um, I didn't personally like it at first. I didn't, you know, I didn't really care for it. But you know, I, you know, we, we went along with it. And teams just was teams. And then we, you know, we had a, a, a little run as teams. You know, some of the very, very beginnings of, you know, where our, all of our careers ended up started, you know, as a result of the band. I know you guys connected with Ali Brown, who's been on the show also. Um, amazing, amazing career he's had. Yeah, man. Um, what, what was your uh, first impressions of of, of him? Um, and, uh, you know, how excited were you to get the record deal out of that? Personally, Ali, at that time, liked the character. Because he was gone. He was doing very, very well. I'm talking about, and he had done well. You know, the 70s was real good to him. So he had really, really, you know, by the time I met him and we met him, I mean, he was doing huge things and had done these things. And I followed him. You know, so I knew exactly who he was. So I was actually somewhat, you know, starstruck. You know, I was a little starstruck because, you know, he was a very prominent dude in the game, you know. And so, and I really, even to this day, I love the way he just kind of bogarted and just took us. You know, we, it, it's like we didn't even have a, a, a choice in the matter <laughs> when we came to work with him. He just literally came to us after we won the KH concert and told us. Check this out. I'm going to sign y'all. I want y'all to be at Ray Parker Studio, be at my studio. To, I mean, um, that was a Sunday. Be at my studio tomorrow at noon. We're going to talk about it. You guys are my band. I'm going to hook y'all up and um, be there. 
and I, I mean, don't worry about nothing. I got y'all. It's on. So we just like, okay, let's go. You know, we were 20 years old, 19, and, you know, this was out of ground. So sure enough, man, you know, we, we, we got with him the next day, and he did everything he promised he was going to do, and took us through. I mean, you know, we were, I mean, he was pulling some real major strings with some major players in the game, you know, and got us in front of some people that nobody else had were pretty good. You know, before we actually did our RCA board, we, we showcased and probably put some really amazing um, situations together to get us exposure to a lot of common people. So we you know, were able to um, go through that whole process before we actually did it. Ali was a, was a, was a baller, you know, real aggressive. How, how did you feel uh, being in the studio? Uh, I assume that was, was that your first time in a, in a pro studio laying that record down or had you done some sessions no, before? No, we had, um, I, you know, we started the recording process and the recording session process. You know, it was more demo recordings. It wasn't anything on the pro level until, for me, it would be 1981 when I really started doing, you know, um, recording sessions, you know, on at the pro level, you know, with major artists. And, um, but yeah, that, that's, that, by that time, you know, we had done our share, you know, that was 1983 when we did the first tease record. So, you know, we had started doing recordings, myself, Kipper, and the, the other guys, you know, we were kind of revered as one of the, the hot rhythm sections around town by that time, you know, a lot of people would hire Myself, Derek Oregon, Thomas Oregon, Rex Salas, you know, as a, as, as, as a rhythm section to do, you know, we did a lot of um, recordings. As well, a I, yeah, I know. Um, I wasn't sure of the uh, chronology of that, but that is uh, key to know. Yeah. Um, well, let's finish talking about Tease a little bit, then I'll circle back to some of those other people's and okay, sessions. Sure. I think that'll work well. Yeah. Um, but uh, so with Tease, you know, I heard the uh, flash, you know, on the radio, uh, probably 1580 K Day yeah. for the first time. And, uh, you know, it just was kicking ass, you know, and it was uh, as good as any funk that was coming out at that point, especially. And, uh, you know, I thought it should be a big hit. Um, it did get some some good play initially. Yeah. Uh, then it kind of tapered off some. And I guess, you know, chart wise didn't, you know, do gangbusters. Right. Um, how'd you feel about that record and how'd you feel about the overall album? You know what, man? Um, in, 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 in real honesty, um, it was our first album, right? It was our record. It was our first album. And I'm grateful for the experience and, and everything that we were able to, you know, everything that, um, it was, you know, the entire experience. But I honestly was not happy with the album. You know, I didn't like the overall outcome of the record myself personally. Um, what I did like, because like, what Ali did was he rehearsed us and we, we kind of, we went in the studio and we kind of, after we wrote the songs, we, you know, we as a band, we kind of put that entire album together. You know, as a band, and, you know, as, and once we came up with the songs, Ali brought us in and we just did like demo recordings, like just straight to track. You know, we didn't even do um, 
um, um, you know, it wasn't multi-track. This is just for us to like hear and 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 to me, from it was the translation from the two-track demo to the full record. It was by that time I think we had lived with the stuff too long, and we didn't have the same. I don't think we hit the records with the same energy that we hit the demos with. And the demos, in my opinion, were sonically doper than what the what the album. Because you know, it's like you know, we we stopped and we thought, and we I may have overthought. And all of us may have overthought a lot of things by the time it got to the actual album. And so it was just, and there was a lot of extra things done that you know, because we're in multi-track mode, we can go in and overdub and punch and see the two tracks were straight down. They were performances. You know, there was no punching in, there was no cleaning up, and it was roar. And even sonically, it was a band. Like, I, you know, we were all playing at the same time, and people were singing, and it was just a performance. So, you know, so it felt a lot more natural, the demos, than the actual album for me. You know, um, I mean, I wish I could, I wish, I'm sure Ali has them, but I'd like to hear the two tracks demos that we did. I'd love to hear that today. I'd be interested to hear 40 years after. You know what I'm saying? I think that's not an uncommon thing that happens, you know, um, yeah, just yeah, yeah. in that process. Yeah, absolutely. You know, the overthinking aspect of it, you know. And, and losing some of the spontaneity and rawness of, yeah, and, 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 and original spark, you know. That's what I'm saying. You know, I think we had maybe gotten a little burnt out by the time we actually, you know, got to the studio, you know. So that, that's my thought about that, that first feedback. You know, I mean, but thank God, you know, it got out and we did it. What you know? what, 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 what was the uh, thinking in the band, you know, in terms of uh, what you aspired to as T's, you know, and, and did you think, uh, you know, emulate somebody like the time or, or anyone else or. Yeah. You know, um, you know, by that time, let me see, we're talking about myself, Kipper, Derek and Thomas Oregon. Rex Salas, Joe Parson, and you got to throw Chucky Booker in there too. You know, although in that first album, he wasn't an actual member. He was a, you know, a member by proxy as our keyboard player too. So, you know, we had been coming up through, like I say, and being influenced by so many things by that time. You know, um, you know, you, it, there was the cameo, um, the cameo influence, you know, the Commodore's influence, the, and then, you know, when you moved into 1980, and, or even late, late 70s into 1980, you know, there was the Prince thing, Prince had, 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 had came, came around, you know, by 1979. So, you know, um, you got Prince, and then, of course, you got the, 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 the spinoffs of the time, and, um, so it was just all of those influences. And, and, you know, and then we were also, you know, even before we did our, our, our first E's record, you know, we had done a lot of top 40 gigs around the city. You know, we did a, you know, we had a really, really rich run of, you know, just playing, playing the circuit, the LA circuit, the LA scene, the clubs, you know, um, private gigs and, you know, just a lot of, as a band. So of course, you know, in that you have to learn a lot of, you know, covers. The cover band day, 
So, you know, and in that, you know, we played a lot, you know, there was so many influences. So, you know, including some rock stuff, you know, there was definitely some rock things that we were great, you know, Kansas and, you know, like carry on my wayward son and, um, you know, yes. And, um, rush, you know, some uh, queen, you know, so we were influenced even by that. So it wasn't so much just a funk influence. And then, you know, even the new wave thing was starting to kick in. You remember the whole early 80s new wave, you know, like the, the, the British thing, the sky music, all that stuff, you know. So we were soaking up all that stuff. So I would say we were trying to incorporate a little of all of that into that project, you know, because we were seriously into all of it. And we played it and we were prolific musicians, you know, everybody was super stellar musicians in their own right, you know. So yeah, the album, you know, there, I remember there was one, What Should I Do? It was a kind of rockish thing, you know, kind of, kind of, you know, more Huey Lewis in the news and, you know, some of the British stuff that, that, that you were hearing around that, around that time. So, yeah. 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 Well, um, one of the reasons and you talk about those, you know, different influences, and I think it's so important. I've said this many times. The best, most innovative music to me is 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 that that brings in a lot of diverse kind of musical elements, not just you know one genre, but exactly. bringing them together and, and taking different aspects of them all. And even on a song like Flash, where it's got the screaming guitar solo, sure, um, sure. you know, it's bringing in some rock, and you know, that's what I really yeah. loved. Um, right around that time was, you know, the fusing together of rock and funk and, and yeah. different things. So, Because that was Thomas Organ. Thomas Organ was such a rock, rocked out dude. You know, he was a rocked out dude and he was a funkster like none other. You know, and, and you know, Tommy was a couple of years younger than the rest of us, you know. So he was Derek's little brother. You know, but he had been so influenced. But, you know, again, it was um, not just the funk, it, you know, coming up in the 70s that we were that we um, gravitated towards. You know, it was funk. It was fusion. You know, a lot of those guitar players and, and, and those, you know, those fusion bands. I'm talking about the Return to Forevers, the Weather Reports, um, um, Lee Rittenauer, um, 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 Stanley Clark. Annie Clark, all of that, man, you know, we were huge, you know, hugely influenced by all of that. Yeah, that's what I love, uh, Courtney, is, you know, bring it all in. Just don't forget the funk. Don't forget <laughs> the funk. Yeah. For me, you know, it will all lead you to ultimately the funk. You should, that should be the landing place. Once you get through all of it, because even rock for me, there's some, I mean, I love playing rock. I love playing rock, man. I've never had more fun. I did um, Kenny Loggins in 1987. I did Kenny Loggins' Back to Avalon tour, you know? And of course we were um, promoting, um, remember Highway to the Danger Zone? and Yeah, from Top Gun. Top Gun, yeah, Highway to the Danger Zone and Meet Me Halfway and, you know, of course the Caddyshack stuff. So, I mean, it was a straight rock gig, you know? But you know, Kenny's quite the funky dude. You know, he's a real soulful guy. You know, I mean, to me, I always told him, man, bro, you sound like a very black lady. 
you know. <laughs> I mean, Kenny Loggins was a very, very dope dude to work for. But, like, you know, it had that rock thing. But, man, I was all, you know, I, I can't help it. I don't give a damn. You know, I, you're going to get the funk, even in that rock. And it made that rock even funky. It, it made it more rock because it had, it had booty. Yeah. It had booty, man. I'm telling you, we were hitting that Kenny Loggins thing. I'm talking about, um, 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 what's that song, man? Footloose. Footloose, man. You ever heard Footloose? I mean, really, man, with the funk on it? Woo! That's what I'm talking about, man. It had it had an extra thing on it. Foot, foot and booty loose. Oh, man, yes. Oh, <laughs> when you mesh it all in there and put that funky undertone under it, man, Footloose was nasty. Mm. And I love playing that tune. Because, you know, it's that rockabilly thing, right? You know, but man, you still, you can still bring a, bring a funk element to it. And I'm telling you, all of them joints, man. So that was what I loved. And, and I attribute that to growing up in that time and that era. Because when I got the Kenny Loggins call, you know, firstly, Kenny was not foreign to me. I was very familiar with him. And then to jump in there and just play all that, you know, you know, just come from that direction. It was cool. And they appreciated it. Even the dudes, the rock dudes, the guitar, they were like, wow, man, you got a different thing. Was was he doing a Loggins and Messina material also? On yeah, 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 yeah. We did a, a, long, a, a L&M medley. Mm. Yeah, we did Loggins and Messina. You know, we had to, you know, he's got to do that. Your Mamba Don't Dance. Oh, Mamba Don't Rock Dance. And yeah. House at Pooh Corner. Um, um, please celebrate me home. You know, yeah, we did all, you know, the whole Loggins and Messina thing. It was a great gig, man. Hmm. Great gig, man. Great. So, but yeah. Yeah, mm-hmm. if you get nothing else from this particular show, bring funk to whatever you do. Bring it, bring it with you everywhere, bro. I'm telling you, it'll, it'll, it'll bail you out. <laughs> if you find yourself in trouble, pull your funk card out, bro, and I probably it, it's going to help you out of that jam, whatever jam you're in. Yeah. Yeah, man. Uh, so, uh, Corny Tease, you know, after that first record, there was yeah. sort of a, a hiatus. A few years went by until there was another record, and then it was. Uh, also named tease yeah which, uh, uh seems like something you know you could get teased about you know uh, having the same title over again which was confusing to the marketplace it was confusing yeah. to me i was like was it yeah. the first record re-released or repackaged exactly. no it's yeah that's a different record with the same title yeah different record same title yes 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 and then by that time man that was my let's see that was 1986 and you know, like family and like brotherhood and, you know, um, it, like it happens, you know, I had had a falling out with, with Kipper and the guys, you know, because, um, you know, keep in mind, we graduated high school in 1979, right? So now we moved into the 80s, you know, it's 1980, 81, 82, 83, 84, like, you know, so we're getting to be like 23, 24, 25 years old now. And we're grown, we're adults. And now the first Tease album, we thought it would be, you know, our, the road to riches for us, and it didn't work out that way. So we had real life situations starting to hit us, you know, as adults, young adults. So, you know, we couldn't really depend, or we were hoping that the Tease 
thing would yield us because, you know, we've been working on it since high school. But reality was, hey, man, you know, we now have rents and we have bills and we have, you know, you know, life that we have to um, we have to facilitate financially. So it became the thing of, OK, and, and we're so good, we're starting to get calls to do other things outside of teas, you know, us individually. And I had gotten some real awesome, amazing calls, you know, early. Like um, one call that I got, you know, was from Patrice Russian to tour with her, you know, in 1982. And the thing was, everybody was, you know, the, the rest of the guys kind of started freaking out, right? at the fact that I'm gonna go out and leave the band, you're gonna leave us behind and you're gonna go out, and you're gonna do this. And, um, you know, um, you know, where's your loyalty? Where's your loyalty? So the pressure was so, I was so young and we were so young and the pressure was so intense from the guys until I ended up quitting Patrice Russell. And I didn't do that tour, you know? So, um, then another opportunity came to me, um, and this is a crazy one. I hate that I, I um, that's the same scenario, but the call was Marvin Gaye, Sexual Healing Tour. And I was on it. I was rehearsing. I was, you know, on my way on to do what would be, would turn out to be Marvin Gaye's final tour before he, before he, he died. But... Oh my God! Here comes the guys from Teens. You know, man, you're gonna leave us behind. You're gonna do this, man. That's fucked up. You know, man. You know, what's what's up with your loyalty? You know, again. And I mean, so much pressure. And like, keep in mind, these are my brothers. You know, I'm feeling. You know, I I I don't want to hurt their feelings. I don't want to do anything because you know, we're, we're we're brothers. So what does Corny do? I quit the Marvin Gaye sexual healing trip. You're not, not doing it. So finally, in 1986, what happened was, you know, and then of course, I, I, I could have done those tours and gotten back because T's didn't do anything in that same amount of time. You know, we were just around town, not making no money. And I mean, here's these two major situations that I've passed on. So I finally got an opportunity in 1986 that I was like, I don't give a damn. I got to go. I'm going. I'm going to do it. And it was just one week. Courtney, how did, how did those um, tours know about you? You know, like uh, Patrice Russian's camp and, and Marvin Gaye's camp. How did they know about you? Um, Patrice Russian, I, um, I, um, let me see. Come on in, babe. Hey, um, Scott, I want you to meet somebody real quick. Scott, I want you to meet the love of my life. And this is my granddaughter. This is Mr. Bea Smith. Hey. Hey, my granddaughter, man. This is my 16-year-old. All right. Nice to meet you. Yeah. How you doing, honey? Have you good? All right. All right. All right. So I'm doing my interview with Scott. Oh, yeah. It's all good, babe. Come on in. Yeah. Thank you, Scott. <laughs> yeah. So, yeah, man. Um, Patrice, let's start there. Um, Paul Jackson Jr. actually started working with Patrice when we were in high school school. Paul got called from Patrice when we were at Gardena High School. And, and, and what happened was Paul and I used to go see Patrice Russian with Lee Rittenauer back when we were still at Gardena, right? We'd sneak into the baked potato. 
underage, and leave right now with uh, sneak us in and make us stay in the back. And of course, Patrice was playing keys. And what what made me stand out with Patrice once I met her, even though I was a kid, was um was um my name, Cornelius Mims. Because she, her producer, and her, her boyfriend at the time was a was my cousin, Charles Mims. Right? Charles Mims, who co-wrote and co-produced everything she did back in the and all of her hits and everything. Is that's my cousin Charles. So um, when I finally met her, and you know, we came to find out that you know I'm related to Charles Mims, that always kept me in her in her mind. So um in 19 by 1982, I had done this one gig with Patrice, and you know, I mean, I was really I think I did very well on it like a one-off. So when um, she was going out on tour, and this was to, to, to promote um, Forget-Me-Nots, and, you know, she, she was blazing by this time. You know, and it was going to be a great, great run. And, of course, we were big Patrice fans. Um, so she remembered me, and, of course, I think my cousin had also told her, hey, what about Cornelius? You know, you, you, want, you know. So I got that call. So now... Um, how did Marvin Gaye happen? Marvin Gaye happened. Okay, go ahead, Scott. I was going to say, was your was Charles uh, miffed that you uh, turned away, Patrice? You know what? It was. It it didn't go over well. It didn't go over well. See, and and in in all of these cases, it was really. It turned out to be very very detrimental. You know, and now here's the big one. Now the Marvin Gaye was really really tough because um, you know it was Marvin Gaye. It was a sexual healing tour and sexual healing was a huge record at the time. So a very, very dear friend of mine, man, rest in peace, um, Wawa Watsi, who had really taken me under his wing as a, as a, as a young player, you know, in the early eighties, I started doing some sessions with him and he really just took me in as a, as a young player that, you know, and, and he really stayed with me all of his, the rest of his life you know, putting me in, in on some great, great gigs. But he was on the sexual healing tour. And, um, you know, he was, a, he was legendary, iconic by this time. You know, he's another one that I was very um, starstruck when I finally met Wawa Watson. I was like, wow. But sure enough, he was the one who pulled the strings and got me in on the sexual healing um, tour, you know, got me, to, you know, where they called me to come in and, I jumped in there and, you know, um, you know, we were rehearsing at CBS records in the, in century city, you know, we were doing the full orchestra. I mean, I was there, I was there, I was on it. I was getting ready to go on. I mean, and I'm 23, 24 years old. So man, I'm a youngster and sitting literally 10 feet across from me right there is Marvin Gaye himself. It was just surreal, man. I couldn't believe it. You know, like, I'm actually playing a Marvin Gaye song with Marvin Gaye. Like, I played many Marvin Gaye songs, but he wasn't sitting 10 feet away from me. So that was the difference, you know. But, man, I'm starting to hear all sorts of shit from the guys. The guys are really letting me have it about this, man. Like, this is the worst thing you could ever be, you could ever do. Hey, uh, Corny, I heard Wawa. Uh, I was really hoping to have him on the show before he passed, but. Work out. Um, yeah. Such a, a fan of his. Uh, yeah. 
I heard he was uh, a character, though. Is that true? Oh, man, how crazy Wawa was, man. This dude was, and 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 you know what? The the more intense, like the way he came off, like he came off like a, like a huge bully. Like he would really, really intimidate the shit out of you, you know? I mean, but that was absolutely his way of letting you know he loved you and he, he respected you. So you had to be thick-skinned around him and um, you had to kind of also get the joke, you know? And see, that's one thing about me. I'm an idiot just like him, you know? So we were kindred in our idiotness, you know? He was an idiot and I, 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 I tapped into him real early. I was like, wait a minute, this dude is out of his mind, you know? So we had a real, and, and, and I totally got him. And then I learned with Wawa, the best way to really deal with him is disrespect him as well. And he will love you to the end of time. If you can show him the same disrespect he shows you, you guys got a relationship, hmm. you know? So that's kind of what I, you know, once I realized, okay, this guy, you know, he, he's not being mean, he's being funny and he really digs me, you know? So all the insults, just, just just shoot them right back at him. You know, so we had this kind of relationship, man. Wawa was the man. The man. Great, great dude. You know? But yeah, so anyway, sure enough, man, the Marvin Gaye thing, man, um, and so that was a huge letdown for Wawa, because he did have to, and he did pull some some serious strings to, to, to pull me in, because I was nobody. Nobody knew who I was at that time. You know, and there were other players around town with bigger names that could have come in. But, you know, so for me to be a, a, a green, new and literally quit, like, what are you thinking about this? Marvin Gaye, you out of your mind? And I kind I regret it. You know, yeah, I regret but, it. But, but still um, around that time, I mean, uh, looking at your list of credits, hopefully it's accurate, um, Corny. Uh, but in 82, you worked with Tavares and yeah. 83, Johnny Gill. Yeah. Uh, around that time too, uh, uh, Patty Austin. Yeah. So yeah. you were still, you know, scoring some pretty substantial sessions. It was some things happening, man. You know, it was some things and, and things have always happened. Thank God. You know, there's always been something to do, you know? Um, so if, you know, I can't really look in retrospect today and say I just totally regret, you know, because there were other things that 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 happened in in in, in the midst of those things that I that I turned down, you know. But then again, sometimes I think, man, what if what if what if I would have done the Marvin Gaye sexual healing tour? How that could have changed my entire, you know, you know what that could have done, and I, of course, we'll never know, right. You know? Yeah. And the fact that it sounds like, you know, you didn't, you didn't turn it away for the best of reasons, ultimately, you know, yeah, you know, I mean, we were young, you know, we were kids, we were kids, man, you know, and, um, and sure enough, as, as, as things would go, um, you know, the, after that, after that, um, that second, and then T's even did a third album without me, you know, and um, that M2 may produce. Um, and then sure enough, now it's the late, it's the late eighties, you know, 
and you know, my career kind of went in in very positive ways post tease. You know, great thing. You know, that's when the Kenny Loggins thing came about in '87. You know, I ended up doing my my songwriter deal with Michael Jackson in '87 as well. You know, I had my first my first daughter was born. You know, so you know, it was it was a good time. You know, as as we got to the tail end of the '80s and crossing over into the '90s and everything. You know, there's much more to this great Truth and Rhythm interview. Just continue on to the next part of the episode. Also, be sure to subscribe to this channel. If you've already done so, please share it with friends. And become a member by joining Truth and Rhythm on Patreon or consider donating at funkinstuff.net. Thank you very much.